Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. All right. Looks like the music can't wait to come on in celebration of Money and Me. Good to have you with us here on the show. I'm Michelle Martin at 10.06 in the morning. What is the likely economic impact of phase two reintroduction here in Singapore? How are you all coping? Well, I hope. Thanks for keeping the radio on. You always have a friend with us here on air and a friendly voice joining us this morning as well. Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Good morning, Arun. How are you doing? Doing with the reintroduction of uh, phase two measures? <laughs> Could be doing a lot better, I guess, Michelle, but you know, it is what it is, right? So. Indeed, indeed. All right, let's take a look at what these measures mean for the economy. How are we doing living with COVID as the new normal? I saw an interesting Bloomberg headline this morning. Singapore's COVID numbers must learn to tell a different story, a narrative that allows for daily living to continue in a post-COVID world where people feel safe and not fearful. So how are we reading the statistics and reacting to them here in Singapore? That's being watched. Are we looking at new case numbers? Or, as we heard from July 29th, is what is more important, the number of serious cases, the numbers of cases in the ICU, for example. Another headline that caught my eye and that is being talked about, Marina Bay Sands Casino closing as the virus spreads here in Singapore. Now, the cases at MBS, just a fraction of new cases from the bulk from that fishery cluster but MBS the casino will be shut for two weeks till August the 5th after that COVID cluster was detected and um, you know we've seen an impact on that certainly in terms of uh, Las Vegas Sands the parent company shares for Las Vegas Sands but let's take a step back Arun what do you see as the likely economic impact of the reaction so far to rising COVID cases here in Singapore? You know Michelle I think uh, you know in the short term and by that I mean maybe a couple of days here and there the markets can potentially correct on the back of these headline news but I think that Bloomberg article you were referring to and I read it too I think that's pretty much spot on, right? Especially with the advent and release of a lot more vaccination slots that have now opened up. And we are seeing vaccination rates 40, 50%, hopefully touching 70%, 90% soon. One can clearly see a path that the, the case of like high risk cases like hospitalization or maybe even sadly death, that is going to be the crucial number to look for. And, you know, this whole aspect of like 180 cases yesterday in in the minds of people that can potentially be fear mongering, right? Because here in Singapore, at least we were so used to seeing three cases, five cases. I remember the first day there were five cases. Everyone was like, oh, my God, this is, you know, getting a little bit crazy over here. But and now it's like 180. And it doesn't seem like panic has set in, which is a very, very good news. Mm. All on the back of vaccination rates. The key question is. And this is obviously the big unknown, right? Uh, Whether this Delta variant or a new variant that comes on board, will that lead to substantially higher rates of hospitalizations? And that is going to be the true driving force for the market. That being said, though, you know, being somewhat of an optimist, I would say 
I would hope that people who are a lot smarter than me are working really hard in the labs right now to ensure that that doomsday situation doesn't happen. So you think markets are going to be looking at um, new variants? Do you think markets are also going to be looking at the vaccination numbers, that that's going to be a key stat here in Singapore? Most definitely. I, I mean, Singapore and globally, right? It's all about, and this is, this, we have concrete data already that backs up that even with the Delta variant, hospitalizations, or for that matter, not even like death, has substantially reduced in cities or areas where there is a high vaccination rate. I mean, Singapore, for that matter, sure, it's inching closer and closer uh, towards the 70% mark, uh, you know, which becomes like more herd immunity in a way, or herd vaccination, whichever way you want to call it. It does seem like the effect of at least the Delta variant is not that heavy. And if that's the case, and, you know, it's been at least probably a couple of months, I would say, where there's no uh, highly contagious variant that's come on board, it seems like we're at least going in the right direction. So, you know, everyone just, we need to put our heads down, just get vaccinated as quickly as possible. Mm. And we can just move on with our lives uh, to at least some extent, I would say. Yeah, so markets looking at the acceleration of the pace of vaccination because, you know, any restriction is going to exact a toll on attempts at recovery of different sectors in the economy. So what is your read of the stock market's reaction uh, to this news earlier in the week? I mean, in the U.S. specifically, given the big headline, uh, like 2% drop, or are you referring to like Asia in general? Um, actually, I was talking about the Singapore market and the phase two reintroduction and what you read of the local market's reaction to it. Right. So, I mean, as you were saying, right, there's certain sectors that are going to get more affected, yeah. um, you know, as expected, of course, like uh, you you saw Sheng Siong rally on the back of that, financials corrected a bit. Uh, because of the drop in interest rates again. So now the whole question about net interest margin comes into play, whether financials will be able to earn a certain good spread. But again, I think, you know, it's a very short-term reaction from my perspective. I think investors, long-term investors, should not pay much heed to that. I feel we're going back to what happened, you know, in the summer of last year, right, where we had certain tech stocks, where we had certain... Uh, companies that will have a nice tailwind on the back of this COVID pandemic, like supermarkets, get a nice little rally. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, the more real economy sectors will take a massive beating, be it travel stocks, uh, financials, oil and gas, etc. So we've seen this play, you know, we've seen this play occur in the past. I do feel, though, that this time is different Mm. because this is a much more shorter term duration on the back of headline news. Vaccination rates are very different, right? I mean, for that matter, there were no vaccines even produced last year, right? So over here, we're sitting in a very different stage. Uh, We have central banks who have already, you know, gotten together, pumped in tremendous amounts of money into this market space. So I don't feel that we're going to be going into that huge, sharp correction, at least of what we saw last year in March. All right. Speaking of a sharp correction, uh, on Monday, we saw quite a sell-off when it came to U.S. markets. They suffered their worst drop since October, then, but then regained almost all the ground loss, 700 points down and then up 550 points after Monday's sell-off. So what do you think was some of the reasons behind the U.S. market sell-off we saw earlier in the week? You know, first and foremost, Michelle, uh, in these fast-paced, or I should say probably extremely fast-paced, high-frequency trading Mm -hmm. denominated markets, 
these day-to-day movements uh, can be magnified a little bit, right? Because you have all these algos running, they see a certain correction taking place, they'll try and sell out much quicker, hoping to buy back literally in the next, be it minute, hour, or a couple of hours later in the day, they'll try and buy it back. So we'll, we are starting to see a little bit more magnified uh, short-term movements, okay. just given the nature of the market participants. What I'm hoping, though, and you know, I, I don't think that investors, at least, which hopefully are most listeners of your show and not traders, really shouldn't be getting bothered too much by this. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes me back to a story uh, 10 years ago. My boss at uh, Lehman Brothers and then Nomura was telling me, you know, if you're sleeping well at night, you aren't taking on the right amount of risk because I was an options trader in the bank. Mm. And that's 100% true, right? Because that's exactly what banks pay its employees for. You take risk on the bank's balance sheet and you hope to make money. The more risk you take, the smarter you are by all means. And the more risk you take, you tend to probably stay up at night watching the markets. Now, as a long-term investor though, and as a caretaker of your own hard-earned money, dare I say the opposite is true. Like, so if 2% drop in a day is affecting your sleep, then you probably have too much invested to begin with, right? So investing is not for everyone. You have to be willing, you have to be willing to stomach these mark-to-market daily uh, gyrations in terms of what your portfolio value can be. So I think it's very important that just one day's, you know, and we could see the VIX uh, shoot up to like 25, it got a little bit scary. It did. For for no, uh, and you know, coming back to your reasons, what you were saying, right? It was the usual culprit. You had your Delta COVID variant, mm. which has been going on for quite a while. You could see airline travel stocks being down, stuff like Peloton and other tech companies going up. Uh, Mohammed El Aryan came out saying, oh, this is actually a bit more of a combination of technicals and future growth fears. There were some other speaker heads that came out saying inflation, profit-taking rotation given the price action in the last couple of six months. I think, you know, human beings, we love to try and, you know, try and rationalize everything, right? And a 2% drop in the stock market is really not that big an amount considering the stock market is up like 8 9% from the, from the beginning of the year. So once again, right, investors, take a step back. Let's not get uh, continuously, you know, whipsawed by these day-to-day movements because if at the end of the day on Monday, if people saw the stock market down like two, two and a half percent, they were like, okay, you know what? I'm going to get out. The next day itself, what happened? Like a huge rally back. Not to say that it's going to happen every time, but it's more important to try and base your investing on fundamentals rather than in trying to time the news. There's a whole bunch of traders and investment bankers who do that as their day job, not required for investors. Arun Pai, our melatonin shot for today. He wants us to have a good night's sleep. So, Arun, you didn't sleep much when you were in the bank. Options trading, I guess. <laughs> Definitely did not sleep much <laughs> in the bank. <laughs> in the banking days, more for that matter with my newborn. But yeah, oh, <laughs> conceptually, nothing conceptually, has changed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I fear asking you. The reason why I wanted to bring this up is, you know, there've been lots of whispers about ten percent correction, and we've had, you know, some lively debate here over whether or not there's going to be a 10% correction this year in 2021. You know, different different views on that. So I'm actually walking with trepidation on my next question. Uh, do you think, given this volatility, uh, given what, what we've seen un- unfurl with earnings season, there are any clear winners so far? Right. So, you know, a 10% or 20% correction 
in the near term future? Like, who knows, right? Like, everyone has their own views, and yeah. that's why exchanges of stock certificates <laughs> happen in the market. There has to be a buyer, there has to be a seller. Mm. So, like, uh, it, it's it's not surprising that people will have many different views in that regard. From my perspective, though, uh, taking a step back, the aspect of vaccination rates going up a fair amount, a lot of central banks still printing a lot of money in this world, it seems like the world is healing and coming together. I mean, you know, people in us in Singapore, obviously just getting whacked with this, you know, going back to phase two news, being in the thick of it sometimes, you, we might not be able to see the bigger picture mm. where we are in a much better state from last year. With the benefit of a lot of liquidity in the market, again, not to say that a 10% correction might not happen, mm -hmm. but for the longer term, you know, I do feel that there's a lot of pent up growth still in this economy. But the question is, you know, which sectors or where do investors deploy that capital? And from my perspective, at least the sectors that I'm really taking a much closer look at, and I'm already invested in them, financials, uh, oil and gas, uh, marquee brand named consumer good stocks that can survive inflation, mm. right? We come back to the story of, you know, what is a true, like a really solid company, has a good balance sheet, has stable management, is able to potentially pass on the price increases of underlying raw material goods. So like if Coca-Cola, for example, increases their price per can, and they've already been doing it by reducing the quantity in a can, like the, the quantity, like the ML uh, in, in the can, but they can also increase the price of the scan. Mm -hmm. And increasing that by like five cents or 10 cents, it probably will not have that big an effect in terms of demand. And it's these kinds of companies that I think are going to play, are, are going to be hugely rewarding to investors over the next three, maybe three to five years. Speaking of Coca-Cola, by the way, Coca-Cola shares finished up more than 1% overnight uh, after reporting pretty good earnings. More of us drinking our Coke, it seems. <laughs> Not Cristiano Ronaldo, though, but yes. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I mean, like these sectors, again, like primarily focusing on equities, right? I do not think this is the time or the place to mm -hmm. be going into long-term bonds. Short-term bonds as a way to see, you know, maybe some people are more... Uh, they can look and gaze into their crystal ball, think there's going to be a correction of 10, 20%. Hence, let me put it into maybe a short-term bond for the next six months or something. By all means, I do not have that crystal ball uh, with me. I'm taking a look at a much more longer-term uh, potentials. So those are the sectors that I have in mind, at least. All right. Thank you for that. So when Elon Musk speaks, markets tend to listen and it appears that they did when it came to Bitcoin. Bitcoin and Ethereum both benefiting from Elon Musk speaking at uh, the B Word conference. Just love the name of that. So Bitcoin rebounded after Musk really reaffirmed his love for the cryptocurrency, uh, saying he personally holds the token. He holds, uh, Tesla holds it as well. His space exploration company, SpaceX, does as well. Uh, he was discussing 
discussing Bitcoin's outlook with fellow backers Kathy Wood and Jack Dorsey. Bitcoin extended gains past 32,000 on the back of those comments. Uh, before that, though, we saw Bitcoin dip quite a bit. So, Arun, you know, initially we wanted to ask you whether you thought Bitcoin's plunge is intensifying. Do you think that with the rebound we've seen after Elon Musk, that it's significant in terms of a pullback of a plunge? Or do you think we're still going off a cliff? You know, it's so sad, Michelle. I was all set to come and gloat on your show a little bit. That finally, look, Michelle, after one and a half years of being proven wrong, finally this correction is happening. It's down over 50%. And then there you go. Elon Musk comes and ruins the show yet again for me. Uh, but, okay, I mean, you know, cryptocurrency, right? You have two potential aspects for it. One is what some people believe where it's going to become the mainstream currency use where people will buy cars, people will take, will buy a seat to go to the moon on it, et cetera, et cetera. I don't see this use case happening anytime soon or if at all, just purely on the back of the mathematical number of transactions that can take place in a second vis-a-vis the cost that it'll, uh, you know, miners will have to be paid out to uh, validate this transaction uh, on the uh, blockchain, it just is not going to be possible. So from that regard, in terms of the use case, it still is nowhere nearly mainstream. That being said, though, do I see central bank digital currencies shaping up and uh, getting rid of this antiquated SWIFT payment method in which currencies are moving from uh, across borders and requiring two or three days for settlement, 100% yes. So that's, but anyway, coming back to the, the, the two aspects of potentially, you know, where we can use cryptocurrency, mm. the use case is gone. Then thinking of it, you know, as a store of value, because there is this other aspect of cryptocurrency investors who start thinking of this as, you know, what about gold, right? Like gold is not being used per se to buy anything. It was used, say, thousands of years ago, but not at all anymore. And it's a great store of value. If you look at it over the last couple of hundred years, it's beaten inflation. Uh, why not over there? And it's a completely uncorrelated asset, right? And not only that, but it'll also beat the rate of inflation. So to that, I would say potentially it could be. It, you know, uh, It's an untested theory, obviously, because Bitcoin's only been around... 10 years, 15 years, whatever, and more mainstream for the past five years. So we still have a good 100, 200 years to go. But more importantly, because of the decentralized or like black box nature of it, I just can't envision a world where governments will not truly step in and shut this thing down. I mean, if you're, say, like China, India, Indonesia, Vietnam, all these countries with capital controls on its own currency, what makes you think that these governments will allow its local residents to transfer their uh, fiat currency into some kind of a crypto, make it go undetectable, and then in-cash that out somewhere else in the world? Like, I just don't see how that's happening. And I was actually shocked that these countries let it happen for such a long time. Yeah. Now, China's obviously clamping down. The only use case for this, again, is like drugs, weapons, and a currency of choice to receive illicit transactions because it's undetectable. Mm. So in both cases, the use case or the store of value, I just don't see 
where this can be, uh, you know, what's the practical use of this? And that's why I'm staying far away from it. Is it entertaining? 100% yes. Mm-hmm. Are there traders who can make, you know, a lot of money out of this? Potentially. But, uh, you know, there, were, there was this, uh, I forget who came out with this. Uh, one of the founders of one of these biggest uh, cryptocurrencies out there. Dogecoin. He doesn't want to get, the Dogecoin. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't want to get back into the space. I was right? shocked because, when I read that. And this is how crazy this space has become. Because when you know that uh, you can get 40x, 50x, like 50 times your amount of return in such a short period of time, it will obviously attract a lot of people. And these people have, you know, their own nefarious means and ways of trying to corner the market and see what can be done. So this whole aspect of decentralization might just be a complete hoax, right? Maybe it's just like 10 big whales who control tremendous amounts of crypto, knowing that a lot of retail people have gotten into this space on margin, keep whipsawing them Mm -hmm. every couple of months or whatever. And uh, for them, it's very easy to buy low and sell out high. Yeah, a lot of secretive forces behind this. That's very interesting insight there. I'm going to play devil's advocate because I have to. Uh, on the use case, though, you know, Goldman Sachs saying nearly half of family offices that the bank does business with wants to add digital currencies to their stable of investment. So that Goldman Sachs survey showing the ultra-rich are increasingly looking to make bets with crypto. Does that change the use case at all? I think it... it, it it doesn't change my knowledge of human greed where anyone will want to take a, you know an investment into an asset where you can potentially make like a 10x return yeah. in terms of a true use case no i i don't see the big change right because again if this is if you're going into it eyes wide open knowing you can lose your entire amount of money but you might have this potential opportunity to make like a 5x or 10x return then by all means that to me is speculation. That's not investing. Mm. So, and, and you know, it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, mm-hmm. right? And, and I know a lot of like even value investors who come into this thing, you know what, eating one or 2% of your portfolio in cryptocurrency, it's not the end of the world. Right. And the problem is when you have, well, not the problem, but the fact is when you have millions of people, including, as you were just mentioning, these high net worth family offices, anywhere from like a 30 million assets under management to hundreds of millions of dollars, you put, each of these guys put in like one or 2%, that suddenly starts adding up to a tremendous amount of money. And But by that rationale, it could be pretty much anything under the sun, right? Like GCBs in Singapore, try and park a couple of some amount of your money into that. You will naturally see the demand, the price of that underlying rally quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're seeing with the crypto space. Does that change at least my thought process of does that make it, you know, a true uh, use case or for that matter, a store of value, given the governments will clamp down? I don't think so. Interesting, interesting. And this really filters into my decision-making process. So I am selling an apartment that I own. So it's freehold, extends across two floors, uh, both floors of access to the sky, open areas. And someone I know said, Michelle, you should sell it and say you accept Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) That is not happening. Not in my lifetime. 
but I might rethink it. So you Bitcoin whales, you can reach me on my Instagram. All right, let's take a look at what MSCI is doing. Financial benchmarking giant MSCI working on what some in the industry would dub an ultimate index that'll track the performance of all markets. It could mark the culmination of half a century of academic theory and practical financial engineering. Listen, the investment geeks wanted to know, Arun, what investor problems could this MSCI index, the ultimate index, possibly solve? I mean, theoretically, it will be amazing, right? Where literally then you'll just have, be it family, not family offices who are probably generate, trying to generate alpha, but your sovereign wealth funds, rather than employing like hundreds of people, are Tamasek, GICs, you can just literally have one person sitting there and clicking the button buy for this index every month as and when taxpayer money keeps coming in. And that will solve all the problems. But, you know, sadly, it doesn't work out like that, right? <laughs> the index, uh, it has to satisfy three tenets. Oh. Rules-based, transparency, and investable. Now, uh, I read up about, you know, this physicist who's come, trying to come up with this index. Theoretically, great. You know, rules-based checkbox. You can have a certain aspect of what my allocation will be into all these different asset classes. Transparency, sure. You can mention exactly what you invested into. Mm-hmm. The investable thing is the question mark, right? Because gone... Okay, sorry. Let's take a step back. Why is the need for the creation of this index? I completely get it. The world has gone from adopting a 60-40 being a balanced portfolio, 60% into equities, 40% into bonds. It's gone from that into a lot more of a nuanced investable world, right? Where you have commodities, where you have a lot more interest in the private market space, where you have private credit. These have become very, very large sectors, which if you're an investor and you're looking at the world, you know, in an agnostic fashion, Mm -hmm. you can see these large sectors where you do not have exposure into and you want to get exposure into it. What's the easiest way to do it? Through an index. The problem though is, in this index, Mm -hmm. considering it has to be rules-based, transparent, and investable, how does the index go about getting exposure into these private companies like Revolut or or like all of these different companies that are out there? How does it do that? You can't because this index will have to buy a VC fund and the VC fund then goes about buying these underlying private companies. But then the index is dependent on which VC fund it chooses. So it doesn't become rules-based anymore, right? So that's the issue. And you're also then being subjected to extra fees, a layer of fees by the VC fund manager. Oh. So how do you go about trying to get around this problem? There just isn't an easy solution because, you know, the S&P 500, right? Standard, this thing. 500 of your largest market capitalization companies in the U.S. will be part of this fund. Plain and simple, you can easily replicate this index and you know it's transparent and obviously very easily investable because they're all publicly traded stocks. How do you go about trying to you know, create this private market segment, be it private credit or be it like private startups? It's very difficult to get exposure to this other than going through funds and you can't have funds in an index. It wow. defeats the full purpose of it. So, I don't know. I mean, I'm not the smart physicist who's out there trying to create this. Would love to see a lot more data and papers and articles, you know, as and when they keep coming out, because he seems quite confident. Mm. But uh, personally thinking, you know, I I think it's not going to be possible. Wow, that was fascinating. I was at the edge of my seat figuring (laughs) out whether this holy grail could be put together or not for (laughs) 
as a benchmark for fund managers. Thank you, Arun. Fascinating as always. Great to have you with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Michelle. He's Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. You've been listening to Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.